You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and we're in Newcastle, West County, Limerick, in the grounds of uh, Castle Desmond. And Padraig O'Rourke is Tashir Chagam, and Padraig is going to tell us a bit about the castle, its strategic importance in Newcastle West, how Newcastle West came about to be of such strategic importance, and uh, a bit about the Desmond family and when it all happened. Gramila Mahagat, Padraig. So, more year of a story, a story Canada, August a story air noki Canada, August got part of the dantier, August fulcher year Craig and Cashland the way here. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, you are all very welcome and delighted you can join us here through the miracle of radio in uh, Newcastle West in a very sunny, a uh, rare sunny Irish summer's day. No, and hopefully, not, excuse me, it's not rare when you come to Ireland, the sun always shines. Of course, just it might, it might be a cloud in front of it. <laughs> The sun is always there, that is true. <laughs> and um, uh, hopefully after listening to this uh, on your next trip to Ireland, it will inspire some of you to uh, come here and uh, see it in person, but certainly have a, do a quick Google image. The castle we're standing in, Newcastle West, is, um, I suppose, the town itself, is Limerick City in the, the Midwest, is the capital of, of County Limerick, but the town of Newcastle West is considered the, the, the capital, uh, the kind of rural capital of, of County Limerick. And the area around it would originally have belonged to the O'Connor and the O'Brien families. Okay. So they would have been the local Gaelic Irish chieftains in the area around the year 1100. Now, of course, in the late 1100s, what happens is the Normans have gone from Normandy in France over to England. Battle of Hastings, 1066, and then 1169, the Anglo-Normans come from Britain over the first English invasion of, uh, of Ireland. And the family who came into this area were known as the Fitzgeralds. Coming from uh, anyone who's living in the Quebec area, of course, will have, will have French or Montreal, but it's Fitzgerald, the son of Gerald. Okay. And the Fitzgeralds, as they became known in, uh, in, in Ireland, became very powerful Norman lords. And they had their first castle in this area, about 10 miles north of Newcastle West, um, near to the River Shannon, at a place called Shannon. And from there, they started expanding out and gaining more power. Now, of course, the O'Briens and the O'Connors who ruled the area weren't too happy with these Norman invaders coming in, but they arrived, the Normans, the Fitzgeralds, at exactly the right time because there was a local power vacuum. What had happened was the chieftain of the O'Briens died and uh, the Taoiseach, the chieftain of the O'Connors, died about the same time. Now, if these were kings like the British monarchy, it would be very simple. Their eldest son would just take over. But in Ireland, in Gaelic Ireland, you had a system what was called tanistry. It mean, meant that any one of the king's sons, by any one of the king's wives, because they practiced polygamy, or indeed any one of the king's nephews, were all equally entitled to become the next chieftain or Taoiseach. Now, in one way, this was a brilliant system, because it meant that the strongest, the most powerful, the most ruthless person became the new leader. But when it happens to two different chieftains in the same area at the same time, it takes a long time to sort that out, and into that power vacuum stepped the Fitzgeralds. And they kept expanding out throughout Munster, throughout southwest uh, 
southwest Ireland and they ended up controlling an area that was about 600,000 acres. You're talking about in County Kerry, the Dingle Peninsula to the west, over as far as Adair, just beyond Limerick, Limerick City, and then south as far as County, uh, County uh, Cork, Cork City and Yall, and it was one area, one tiny corner of the southwest around Beira and Skibbereen, and there the McCarthy's, the local Gaelic clan, always held out and resisted and refused to give in. But these people, the, the Fitzgeralds, became incredibly powerful controlling this area, and the area they became uh, came to control was known in Gaelic, was known in the Irish language as Das Moon, South Munster, and from that the Das Moon by English speakers got pronounced as Desmond, and the Fitzgeralds became known as the Earls of Desmond, and the castle here in Newcastle West is called Desmond Castle after them. From a space perspective within the grounds that we're on at the moment, it's quite expansive. Mm. It, it, it's quite a large area. If you basically, the castle is the oldest thing in the town of Newcastle West, and the mm. town really develops around it. Um, the town is, is named after mm. the original name of the town was the Newcastle West Limerick, but that, of course, was too long to keep saying and writing down, so they just shortened it to Newcastle West. It was built here. You might faintly hear listeners in the background the sounds of traffic on the N20 National Roadway. That runs between Limerick City, which was an old Viking city, and Tralee, which was a new Norman city founded by the Fitzgeralds. So one reason why they put it here, right beside that roadway, was to control it. So you could charge people coming by a tax or a toll, and militarily that was very strategic. Running along one side of the the castle, between us and the roadway, is the Ara River. And that was obviously very important as a, a source of, of drinking water, but also formed a natural moat on, 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 on one side of the, the castle. Now, if you visit today, or if you Google image this, this place, the castle really, it's been in constant occupation for 800 years. So the same way that we, we might you know, put in a, a patio, or change our garden, or change our interior furnishings, you have 800 years of change and improvement and destruction, all these things here. What the original castle would have looked like was probably when the Fitzgeralds first built here, they may just have had a simple wooden palisade keep out the wild native Irish. And then when they had consolidated their power in the area, they then put a, uh, a stone building, uh, building up. And what you have um, what it would have looked like, the very first castle, very little of which remains, would have been walls maybe 30 feet, about 10 meters high, mm-hmm. very large circular towers at the corners for defense, and the area it enclosed was quite large. You're talking about oh, an area that's, you know, in Canadian terms, I'm thinking maybe three or four ice rinks would fit inside, certainly. It, it would have been quite large originally, and what's open to the visitor today is about, you know, two ice rinks or, you know, one very large um, sports pitch that's that's left and accessible today. Some of the original castle walls from 800 years ago, from 1198 when we've the first reference to the to the castle, are actually still standing. They're about three feet, one meter thick, and um, 
we have parks, we have sections of them standing. The, there's two main buildings that are accessible to the public. You have um, what's called the Desmond Hall, named again after the, the family, and that's been fully restored. That was a medieval banqueting hall. And you have an Hannah Moore. And Moore in Gaelic in Irish means big or great. So it was a larger, even more elaborate um, banqueting hall. The ground floor foundations of both of these buildings would date from around the 1200s, late 11, early 1200s. So they're the part of the earliest surviving parts of the castle. And then up on the top floor, which is much more elaborate, would have been built uh, in would have been built in the mid 1400s. So it was much more modern. And these buildings were in constant use, as we'll discuss later, right up until uh, until modern times. It's all built in um, in uh, limestone, which is the the local stone. Except one very handy trick when we're bringing people around the castle is we look for the yellowstone sandstone uh -huh. that is not native to this area and any time we find sandstone being used at the site we know it's from the very earliest um, this yellowstone that stands out is from the very earliest phase of construction so when I look at a building like this the stonemason at that time would have been a prized tradesman yeah. and there would have been huge labour involved because we know any construction project at the moment even if, if you want to do restoration there's a lot of physical labour I guess to some of this this was what the tenants or the subjects of the Fitzgeralds would have been employed to do? Well, it's, it's the idea of building a castle like this. It has several purposes. One of them is obviously military. Another one is as a, as a, as a home, because the Fitzgeralds would have had dozens of castles like this throughout their 600,000 acres. And they might have gone to Killarney to visit their, um, their cousins, the Fitzmaurices, um, if the fishing and the hunting was good in Killarney. And then they might hold court in Newcastle West and come here, and then they might go to Adair and collect um, collect taxes. So they, they had a lot of these places to bring in resources and they could move around and enjoy them. So it was actually a family home for them or almost a series of holiday homes. They're obviously built, though think of the history of colonialism. These are built to send out a message. Mm -hmm. And the larger, the more elaborate your castle, the more detailed the carvings on it are, it's trying to impress on people that you know we have the power, we are in, in, in charge now. It's sending out a message to the, the native Irish. And one thing that's very interesting about the castle here in terms of sending that message of power is if you're standing in the town square, what would have been outside the castle walls, the windows have a layer of decoration on the outside, what's called an arch or an eyebrow, standing out of the wall. And the windows are very ornate on the top part and on the bottom part. No expense is being spared. But when you're standing where we are now, listeners, inside the castle courtyard itself, there's only a small amount of decoration on the top of the windows and there's none on the wall exterior around it and basically anyone who's already in the castle courtyard already works for you they know how powerful you are you don't need to impress them so it's a bit like keeping up with the Joneses and having the outside of your house very elaborate but the inside a bit plainer right now um, so coming back then to the amount of power that they exerted over the area in Munster that they controlled um, the revenues that they were deriving in order to finance all this kind of stuff would have been at the expense of the native Irish. Absolutely. And it, it really, the Fitzgeralds become one of the most powerful families in, um, in Munster, but also one of the most powerful families in Ireland. 
A, often when we read Irish history books, it seems like a very straightforward colonialism. These these Anglo-Normans come in from Britain, 1169. Their loyalty is to the uh, the King of England, and we think that so the King of England had his you know his colonies set up here. But what tended to happen was that an English king would very rarely actually bother coming to Ireland to hold the Parliament to meet all these different Norman lords, and usually what you had was one or two families that became very powerful like the butlers who were the great rival of the Fitzgeralds the butlers would have been more in Tipperary Kilkenny Kildare and um be basically once the butlers and the Fitzgeralds and whoever else uh, were collecting taxes from the, both the, the Norman people who had been planted here and from the local Gaelic Irish once they, w- they were taking their share of those paying back the rest of the money to the King of England and once these Norman lords were not fighting with each other once the crown was getting their share of taxes they weren't too bothered with what was happening in Ireland that is unless a war break out between the native Gaelic Irish who were rebelling and the Norman invaders or unless the Norman lords like the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds often did start fighting each other for even more power and it's not really until the Tudors, until Henry VIII and, and Elizabeth in the, uh, the late 1500s that you get a proper crown authority not just in Dublin but in all of Ireland and listeners you might have heard the, the, the phrase that something um, something wild or unacceptable is beyond the pain Mm-hmm. That's because the area around Dublin was considered a stronghold of that Norman English influence. But once you came down here to a place like Newcastle West, you were pretty much beyond the pale. And the reason for that is the Fitzgeralds, even though they had come over as Norman conquerors, very quickly became Irish. And we had a phrase about them in the Irish language, Vichyad Nisgael non Fain. They became more Irish than even the local native. Irish them, themselves and this was part of their, their downfall because the butlers their great rivals remained loyal steadfastly loyal to the English crown and they were the ones who won out in the end and we have a great piece of art if we go out just walk out mm-hmm. to the front courtyard between us uh, the, between the, the main standing parts of the castle and the town square we have a great piece of art that represents that we can talk about so as we're going out you mentioned that the initial construction um, would have been back uh, 11, 1200 and that there was construction then in the 1400s, 1500s. Were the construction methodologies between the two periods, are they noticeable in any way uh, when you examine the structures? Well, it's all building with, you know, uh, limestone and, and mortar, and that's pretty straightforward. What tends to change is the, um, let's say, the defensive features and the, the, the style of carving the artistic features. Right. But really, it's all limestone construction. Um, beyond the very early period when they used sandstone and it's all held together with um, with uh, you know basically a, a, a mortar that's made from uh, sand clay and uh, quite often they'd use animal blood and animal hair in the mortar to bind it and we're very lucky here in Newcastle West that we have a uh, an exact date for when the first castle was built here 1198 but in other cases where we don't have an exact date we can go into that mortar if it's original we can pull out samples of the horse hair or the cow hair and carbon date them to get a date but what we've come out here to see you can 
as I'm knocking it just here at there the, uh, there's a lovely bronze statue um, about a quarter life size it's an, an equestrian statue and it's by the artist Tina Cusson and the name of the, the statue is Garrod Irla which is Gerald the Earl and there's an inscription on this side which gives his, his date 1337 to 1398 now it, he was the uh, he was the fourth I think Baron of Desmond's they hadn't become Earls at that stage the Fitzgeralds and really he was a Renaissance man before the Renaissance because this guy was according to folklore an astronomer he was an alchemist you know one of these crazy medieval scientists who tried to turn any metal they could find into gold mm-hmm. he wrote poetry and very interestingly he came obviously from a French Norman English background he took aspects of English poetry French courtly love medieval poetry and mixed them with traditional Gaelic Irish poetry because he spoke Irish and brought all these new uh, European and British ideas into Irish poetry and changed it and merged it and as well as that of course he's, he's you know the lord of this the baron of this very powerful uh, area so he's a real historical figure but his death is surrounded in mystery some people say he was murdered by a, a rival some people say he fought a, a battle and just walked out of his tent afterwards and was never seen but what we see here he's depicted on horseback now he's dressed in the armour of a Norman knight something you would see in a, a Robin Hood movie mm-hmm. he's got a, a pointy metal helmet with the, the piece coming down over the nose protecting him he's in chain mail he has big mail gauntlets on some more armour and a sword strapped to a belt around his waist Uh, he's riding a horse but the horse has no saddle and this is deliberate by the artist she's conveying the fact that he is from a Norman background he's dressed like a Norman but he's riding a horse like the native Irish did with no saddle and no bridle and this goes back to what I was saying a minute ago these guys have become half Irish and what happened with the Fitzgeralds was whenever the King of England came over for a parliament um, these guys would be down the country they'd have long beards they'd have long hair in the Irish style they would dress in Irish style clothing which was completely different to what the English would have worn and they would all speak Gaelic to each mm-hmm. other because they had married into local Irish tribes they ruled use, using what was called March law a mixture of English and Irish law basically they used whichever set of rules suited them best at any given time and uh, whenever the King of England called them to a parliament in Dublin they would go to the barber they would shave off their beards cut their hair short practice speaking English to each other as they rode to Dublin on their horses with saddles for probably the first time in years and wearing English style clothes and for the week the parliament was being held in Dublin they would be perfect organised civil Englishmen and then they would come back down the country and revert to being wild Irishmen again and what uh, happened is the Fitzgeralds became so Irish that in the 1500s they ended up leading three different rebellions against the English crown first you had Silken Thomas's rebellion against uh, Henry VIII and then you had two rebellions against Queen Elizabeth I what are known as the two Desmond rebellions in the late 1500s 1570s and 1580s and after that the Fitzgeralds lose all their all their power all their influence and all their castles and lands are taken from them 
There's another interesting story in, in folklore about this statue, and that's kind of the real history of the, the Fitzgeralds. But again, folklore has stepped into this this myth about uh, what what happened, the uncertainty about what happened to Garodirla, how this guy met his end. And the story goes that Garodirla was a great magician, and he brought his wife. His wife asked him one day, could she see him perform his magic? And he said, yes, no problem. And he brought her up to the banqueting hall at his castle in Loch Gur, in the other part of Limerick, in East Limerick. And there he said, okay, whatever happens, do not get worried, do not get upset. And trick number one, he pulled out his magic wand or said his incantation, and he turned himself into a great big bear. She was delighted with this. She wasn't afraid, she was happy, clapped and fine. Trick number two he turns himself into a fox and he runs around in between the throne and all the, the legs of the medieval table and so on. And then trick number three he, for his final act, he turns himself into a little sparrow and he flies up high amongst the, uh, amongst the rafters and in and out through them. But of course what happens a hawk flies in through the window chases the sparrow his wife gets scared because in these medieval stories women are always to blame for some reason <laughs> he loses his power because she has become scared he falls to the floor he turns from being a sparrow into a snake and he slithers out the wall of the, the, the window of the castle and down into the bottom of the lake and that's the end of him or is it? because the story continues that he hasn't been killed he's in a secret cave or a hiding place at the bottom of the lake and that every seven years he comes out he gets on his horse as he's depicted here and he rides it back and forward some stories say across the lake or across Limerick or across Ireland and his horse has silver horseshoes and when the horseshoes have been worn away completely he would come back and be king that's the story but what lies behind it if we analyse the folklore is they're trying to say um, it, the same stories are told about King Arthur at Avalon it's a pan-European you know folk, folk tale but why the Fitzgeralds have made this up and based it in Loch Gur is they knew they were from an English Norman background they had become native Gaelic Irish and they wanted a story that tied them into the landscape and Loch Gur is a place that not just has a Fitzgerald castle but really old um, stone age and bronze age burial monuments and a very strong pagan past and they were trying to connect themselves to that ancient Irish past now that they had taken on a new Irish identity Let's go back to the building for a moment because the, the human side of it is always the fascinating but when we go to the construction the condition of this building is superior to most of the ruins around the country. Yes, well, quite a lot of, you know, care has been put put into it. Um, perhaps if we walk back around inside, yep. we'll, uh, we'll get a better view. Because, um, you know, what, what's striking me as I listen to you is that the strategic importance of the Fitzgeralds is on a par to what you might have had with Fitzwilliam mm -hmm. over in the east. But yes, um, I have to admit that it's nearly by accident that I ended up here in Newcastle West. Well, that's how a lot of people find us. They, they don't plan a journey. They just uh, tend to be driving by and see the sign and come in. And then when they see that we're completely free of charge as well, it's, uh, it's an added uh, 
an added bonus. For the side from the, 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 the driving by, the, the importance of this mm. uh, as part of the well, story of Ireland yeah. is uh, like, yeah, so you know, you can go up to Dublin and there's all the wonderful architecture and there's other parts of the country, but this is a jewel. Well, what's wonderful about this, as I said, is it's been in, in constant use for 800 years and it, it really kind of bookends the story of, of British colonialism in this, this part of Ireland. But if we just take the, the main part of the castle here, it's had a lot of different uses over the, over the years. The reason why it's in such good condition and fully restored today is because in 1989, the state, the Office of Public Works, who run the Irish Heritage Services, uh, came in and they began the restoration uh, work and uh, basically they re-roofed it. And if you go inside the, the acoustics of the, um, the timber roof that was put on in a traditional medieval style, that roof took two years by expert craftsmen to, uh, to, to, to do. And um, all the masonry inside, of course, was restored as, as, as well. And um, it opened to the public in 1998. And pre uh, the COVID pandemic, we were getting about 15,000 visitors, uh, 15, visitors a year. But to run through, the reason why, as I said, it's always been in, in kind of good condition is it's constantly being reused and adapted. The very ground floor of this building, we can see some of that, that yellow stone, the sandstone mm -hmm. I talked about, and that's pointed up in an arch. And those are what are called, uh, you can hear listeners, one of our younger uh, visitors in the background, um, those are called lancet arches. They would have been a church, not a castle originally. We know there was a church here because it's recorded that um, in 13, um, 1318, at the time of Robert the Bruce's invasion of Ireland, the local Irish um, uh, rebelled against these new Normans who had arrived. They came in a, a tribe or a clan called the Donegans and they burnt the castle to the ground, including the church. And not once, but they burnt it twice because as soon as the Fitzgerald started rebuilding, they came in and burned it again. And it was always a mystery as to where this church had been until we started the restoration and we found these yellow sandstone lancet windows. So the ground floor of this building was originally a church. But when the Fitzgeralds finally um, rebuilt it, they decided to, uh, to build up and to turn the top floor into a banqueting hall. They turned the area that had been a one-story church into uh, what's called a, a vaulted chamber, and that was basically used for food storage. There would have been kitchens associated with this. And around 1450, a guy called um, uh, James the Usurper, uh, who was, I think, the seventh Earl of Desmond, he was very powerful. He was in power from uh, the 1420s up until, I think, the 1460s, so about 40 years. And he built all these very large, elaborate banqueting halls to show off his wealth. And that would have been used for banquets, obviously, like we see in old Robin Hood movies, but it would also have been used for um, as a courthouse. Remember, there was no courthouse, there was no Canadian Mounted Police or Constabulary, so... This was the law. This was the law. Yeah. It was also used as no revenue service, so this was your tax office. Right. You came from your mud hovel once, uh, once uh, a year and came in here to pay the taxes to the representative of the Lord who represents the, the king. And it was a way, again, of impressing on the, the native Irish who was in charge. But obviously, the Fitzgeralds, as I mentioned, 
fall from power in the, the 1580s, the land is given out to uh, undertakers. Now that doesn't mean somebody who arranges funerals, but an undertaker was an English lord who had undertaken to come over and take over one of these estates in, in Ireland. And the family that got this were the Courtney family, the Earls of Devon. And they built a much larger uh, mansion house. Think of something akin to Downton Abbey on the castle uh, site. So this building that had been the medieval banqueting hall went out of use at that time but what they started reusing it as was a Freemasons um, Freemasons meeting place in the uh, 1700s there was an Anglican community or Church of Ireland uh, church that was built on the the site as well and in more recent years um, this was actually used for um, it was used as a dance hall kids used to come here at uh, at Christmas to meet Santa Claus there was an annual Halloween parade in the 1960s in Newcastle West and that used to end up in this in this building uh, where the judges would judge the costumes and even the local soccer and GA teams used to have this as their, their changing rooms. Oh. Um, you know, when you mentioned it being re-roofed in the acoustics, the first thing that struck me was it was obviously a fantastic venue yeah. for music. We have had great musicians here. I'm thinking of um, Martin Hayes, the, the fiddle player. Um, we've had David Power, who's one of the best pipers around, yes. perform here as well. We've had poetry readings, very appropriate because of the Garrow Deerla collection from Richard Blanco, who was Barack Obama's uh, inaugural poet. We've had the great Cork singer-songwriter John Spillane in here. Mm-hmm. We have had plays performed here. Um, y- you name it, we've done it. We haven't had a big Hollywood movie yet, uh, but you know, if somebody's looking for a location, contact the Office of Public Works. But to come back to the um, the modern use of the, the building, and it's something people often don't think about. Um, the, Court, or the Courtney family, the Earls of Devon, have control of this place from the 1600s up until the 1930s. Now, obviously, any listeners to this program will know about Ireland's revolutionary history, the 1916 rising, the War of Independence. What you have here at that time is the Courtney family live in a big castle, I think it's called Powderhurst Castle, back in, in England. Okay. They have a land agent living here representing them, Richard Curling. And he gets a knock on his door in the middle of the War of Independence and he's in 1920 and he's told to get out. But it's not the Irish Republican rebels that tell him to get out, it's the Warwickshire Regiment of the British Army who take over this place as barracks. And we also had in here with them the uh, RIC Auxiliary Division who were like a, an elite group of black and tan officers and they were actually stationed here for a period I'm not sure was it C Company or K Company of the Oxys but the group that left here when the Warwickshire Regiment of the British Army took over completely the group of auxiliaries that left here were transferred to Cork City and they're actually the same group that burnt uh, Cork to the ground causing two million pounds worth of damage leaving thousands of people homeless and uh, uh, I think the destruction of many acres of property and uh, the loss of at least three lives. Um, so what happened, of course, is that the British Army were in here during the War of Independence. The Irish Republican rebels were out in the in the hills fighting for an independent Irish Republic. And eventually, of course, in December of 19. 
1921, a peace treaty is signed between members of the British government and members of the rebel Irish government. That treaty, of course, splits the island of Ireland into the, the north of Ireland or northern Ireland, which remained part of the United Kingdom, and the south of Ireland, which was going to leave the United Kingdom but remain within the British Empire. And of course, um, disagreement over this peace settlement not only split the island, it also split the Republican rebels who'd been fighting the British into the anti-treaty IRA who wanted to keep fighting for complete independence outside of the empire and the pro-treaty group which became the, the Free State Army led famously by Michael Collins and um, who obviously wanted to accept the, the treaty if only as a stepping stone to greater independence in the future. What happened at that time is the British Army marched out the Earl of Devon did not get his castle back because the anti-treaty IRA came in and took control of it. And during fighting in the Civil War on the 7th of August 1922, from these medieval windows you would have had machine guns firing, uh, you would have had hand grenades being thrown racing around the town square you had an armoured car firing machine guns back and there was several hours fighting here until finally the big guns came in the pro-treaty side, the Free State Army had artillery right. and they fired artillery shells on the castle demolishing part of it. The Republicans, of course, had experienced this already in Adair, in Limerick City, in Dublin. They couldn't hold out against artillery. But they weren't going to let their pro-treaty enemies take control of the castle. Uh, so what they decided to do was to burn the mansion house that remains, that had been built by the Courtney family, the Earls of Devon. So there had been, um, in an area kind of uh, just to the, the west of the site, between us and the Ballygowan Mineral Water Factory, there had been a very large mansion house and that actually burnt down at the time. Now luckily for the Earl of Devon, he had already sold all his other property in Newcastle West several years before when he saw which way the wind was blowing and he got £8,000 compensation which was quite a significant sum mm -hmm. um, and there was a new house built on the site of the former mansion and that house is still actually occupied, is still lived in, in today. Um, the Courtney family of course after all this destruction in the new house really lost their interest in, in Ireland and um, they ended up selling the property. When they did, it was sold into two lots. As I said, one lot still has a private house uh, built on it, and the other lot where we're standing, which is the tourist attraction now, was bought by a local businessman called Paddy Nash. And Paddy Nash was a very enterprising entrepreneur. So he used the main medieval banqueting hall here uh, for dinner dances, for bingo, for social occasions, and the large larger um, Hall of Moor, which isn't restored today, from 1933 up until 1968 was the town cinema, the what? Desmond Cinema. Must have been the most unusual cinema in Ireland. I still get older people from the town who remember having been in here, and it was, it was roofed at the time, obviously. It was a projection box at one end. It sat 200 people. There was a tuck shop. There was a ticket office along outside the medieval wall by where we see these very ornate medieval windows. Uh, but what happened, of course, was the old celluloid films were made using a chemical process that involved nitroglycerin and were highly flammable. And in late August 1968, the whole thing went up. Thankfully, it was the middle of the night. There was no one in the cinema at the time. I went back to the Limerick Leader, the local newspaper, and I found a press report in the burning. And then suddenly it occurred to me, well, there was no Google at the time. They have the film listings 
I go back in the microfilm another week and I found that the last film shown here in August of 1968 was Burt Lancaster and Shelley Winters in a film called The Scalp Hunters so that's the last one that was ever shown here and after the place was basically burnt down it was used as a it was sold on by Paddy Nash it was used as a lumber yard for a number of years it was lying idle basically and local people in Newcastle West put basically pressure on the government to buy it to do something with it and now we have the tourist attraction we have today fantastic I have to keep an eye on time because we're running out of it and as you say it is the fantastic tourist attraction it is today Newcastle West geographically you say it's between Limerick and Tralee mm-hmm. so uh, if you're coming in by Shannon Airport it's relatively close yep. and if you're going back out by Shannon Airport relatively close but it, it, it is and we have lots of there are lots of fantastic tourist attractions in the area many of them state owned and, and free of charge um, I'm thinking of I, I manage a number of, of sites in the region so close to Shannon Airport if you went west if you're thinking about travelling the Wild Atlantic Way or going up to the Cliffs of Moher Scattery Island is a site that very few people will have heard of has an amazing 1,500 year history involving kings, vikings, uh, Brian Beru, pirates, the Spanish Armada, the British Army, the Famine and that actually uh, has won two European Destination of Excellence awards um, so that's a very important site Ennis Friary in County Clare as well the oldest building in the town of Ennis just you know 20 minutes drive away from Shannon Airport we're obviously on the southern side of the Shannon River but the Office of Public Works manages a number of castles like the Stoll in North Kerry and Ross Castle in Killarney which are all well worth a visit and as you said Harkley all these facilities uh, are free mm-hmm. and uh, I have to compliment Public Works some more I've been in a number and I've met people like yourself in a number of other venues and the depth of knowledge that you guys have and how you are able to bring these places to life is life is fantastic and that is the experience that the visitor is going to receive well we're very lucky in that like if I think of the, the guides we have we have working here one of them worked for a number of years in Kilmainham Jail in, in Dublin and has worked in Listowel Castle before transferring here another one of our guides has worked at uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site and, and Skellig Michael made famous of course by Star Wars and another one of the guides who, who works here is currently doing her master's in museum studies and has a degree in, in Irish and um, and history and the, the other guide is, is currently studying for a PhD so yeah. not only are you getting a free tour you're getting a very good quality tour and it has been my experience working in the OPW that a lot of the guide staff are very passionate about what they do um, very enthusiastic about things like the Irish language Irish history Irish archaeology uh, nature folklore and I think that's anywhere we go in the world that's what we like to encounter people whether they're native to the area or not but who have a passion for that area's history and heritage you can be found at opw.ie that's it exactly heritageireland.ie has our um, has uh, a list of all the opw heritage sites in, uh, in in ireland and if you look us up on facebook here specifically it's desmond castle newcastle west